All right. So uh, let me give you a word from my sponsor because I know you're here at RTI. RTI is a fully accredited undergraduate program. You guys are going to come away with a wonderful degree that you can use at Alliance Theological Seminary. <laughs> so uh, seriously, I, I would love to have some of you as students. Uh, here's the good news, maybe the bad news. You, don't, you no longer have to move to New York to do an ATS degree. Uh, you can do it fully online. The MDiv, the MA in uh, uh, Biblical Studies, the MA in Biblical Literature. If you want to go more academic, you want to do the Hebrew, the Greek track, you can do all that online. And uh, uh, we'd, we'd love to have uh, as many of you as the Lord brings our way. Um, in fact, I'm trying to recruit Steve uh, to take the, the D-min eventually, like we got Rob Basham to do as well. So anyhow, but Wanda and I are from Nyack, um, and um, we've been here. This is now our third time. And we're excited to be with you again. And uh, I want to talk to you about uh, something that has changed my life. Okay. Now, let me give you a little bit of my background. I got filled with the Holy Spirit at the Anaheim Vineyard in 1987. John Wimber laid hands on me. Um, in fact, I begged the Lord to let me leave the Christian and Missionary Alliance. I wanted to go fly fighter jets with the vineyard. And, uh, and literally, I had a dream one night when I was preparing to resign leave the denomination, and in the dream, I saw these fighter jets, and I went, yeah, I'm going to get to fly one of those. those. That's the cool vineyard movement. They were new, okay? I know you don't even know who I'm talking about now. But, uh, but anyhow, uh, but then the dream shifted, and I had a vision of a steam train, and I saw the steam train chugging along, and I saw A.B. Simpson driving the steam train. Nice. <laughs> and I looked at him, and he turned and looked at me, and I said, Lord, what are you trying to say to me? And he said, uh, I want you on the train. It's not real fast and it's not real flashy, but it's headed toward the kingdom and it's got lots of horsepower. And uh, that's also when he called me to go into education because he said this, if you win the hearts of the students, you will change the denomination. And over 30 years, I've been watching that happen. And now I get to team up with uh, Salem Alliance and RTI because we're all on the same team. And so I'm thrilled that we get to do this together. But I want you to hear this. I have a well-developed theology of power. And I think the kingdom of God is here. I think healing is available. Deliverance is available. And I believe we were meant to walk in power. But the kingdom of God is not yet here in its fullness. That means that until Jesus comes, we're going to win some battles. We're going to lose some battles. Uh, you're going to pray for people and then bury them. That's the bad news. You're going to pray for people and see them healed. But the kingdom has come, but it's not yet here in its fullness. And so here's what we have to have. We have to have not only a theology of power, but we have to have a well-developed theology of pain too. Because when you pray for somebody and they're not healed, and you don't know how to grieve that loss and grieve that disappointment, you will give up on your theology of power. In fact, I, I dare say that I'll bet you know people that have said, I'm not praying for healing anymore. Everybody I pray for dies. Well, the, there's a bigger issue at hand. They don't know how to deal with disappointment. And don't you dare go into ministry until you learn how to deal with disappointment, rejection, betrayal, because uh, it's going to happen. It's not a matter of if, it's just when. You know, it's not a matter of, you know, are you going to get wounded, but it's how deep and how wide are the cuts going to come. And if you don't learn how to grieve your losses, then you will give up on your dreams and you'll live a safe life. 
And so grieving is essential in a number of areas. And so my starting premise here is that we must grieve the painful losses of the past seasons of our life before we can effectively embrace the present and the future. Now, you know, Rob mentioned that he had to, to grieve the loss of his father. I want to suggest, yes, we do have to grieve the loss of loved ones. But those typically aren't the losses that sidetrack us. And, and here's why. When your father dies or your mother dies or your sibling dies or someone close to you dies, we generally give people the space to grieve that. There's kind of an understanding not to fix people, not to force them to go through it too quickly. We give them the space. But it's the smaller losses that we experience that people say, get over it, move on. You know, just, you know, just, just keep going. And what happens is we get sidetracked. In fact, I would suggest if you don't grieve your past well, your past will own your present and your future. And your present and your future will be dictated by your painful losses of your past seasons. And so to grieve or to mourn means to express sorrow. You get what's on the inside out to the surface. Very simple uh, definition. And uh, Jesus spoke of this when he said in Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who get what's on the inside out to the surface, for they receive a divine comfort. Now what Jesus is saying here is that there is a healing that comes to us, a comfort from God, when we get what's on the inside out to the surface. Now, some of you look at that and you say, does that mean I have to cry? Well, men especially, if you're asking the question, does that mean I have to cry, you could probably use a good cry, okay? And again, let me pick on the men here for a minute. Um, I think we are operating as men with a deficiency in our developmental process. I think uh, the ladies tend to have an advantage over us. Um, for instance, uh, women have been known to say to one another, I just need to go have a good cry. And your girlfriend says, I'm coming with you, you know, and you just go have it. When the Steelers lose a playoff game, I'm a big Steeler fan, I know, praise the Lord, thank you, but we're grieving. Um, <laughs> You know, my, my friend and I don't say, oh, let's go have a good cry. Most of us don't. Some might. So men tend not to understand how to do this well. Now, again, you're going to see as I develop this, I think there's a variety of ways to grieve. I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all. I think the way I process my pain, my disappointment and loss is very different than the way my wife does. But I have to learn her way, and she has to learn mine. And to be honest, I've learned more from my wife than any other person about this process. And it started on, uh, I think it was our 10th anniversary. Um, I'll tell you a quick story. So we were living in Redding, California at the time. And, um, and we took the weekend off. I took the weekend off from church. I was pastoring a church in Redding. And we went up to Mount Shasta. I got a bed and breakfast there. I took her on a hot air balloon ride over Mount, not over Mount Shasta, that's too high. You need oxygen. Okay. Uh, but around Mount Shasta, <laughs> honey, I'm dying. And, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the truth is I hated every minute of the, I mean, she loved it, but I was, I found out I was afraid of heights, um, on the hot air balloon ride. So it was a great weekend. Incredible. I mean, I was an amazing husband. I, I hit it. I did everything right. So we're driving back to Reading on Sunday afternoon. And she goes, honey, on our ride back, do you think we could listen to this cassette tape that tells you how long ago it was? We've been married 34 years now. 
She goes, this cassette tape, it's a marriage counselor. And I'm thinking, lady, you are married to the most amazing man on the face of the earth. I don't need no freaking marriage counselor, you know? So I go, oh, sure, hon, I'd love to listen to that instead of music. And so we plug in this marriage counselor. So here's what the guy is saying. He says, in essence, this. Men, you're fixers. When your wife needs to express sorrow, when she needs to bring stuff to the surface, as soon as she starts to do that, you begin to fix her. You begin to fix the situation, you begin to remedy it, you begin to come up with a plan. And I'm sitting there going, of course, that's what we do. We fix things, we're men, you know, you know the tool man, okay? Um, and so I'm, I'm thinking this guy's an idiot, but I look over and she's crying. And I look at her and I go, I do that, right? And she goes. <laughs> so then he says, uh, man, when your wife says, I'm worried about Kelly, my daughter's behavior at school, she doesn't need you to fix her. She needs you to process how she's feeling because the deeper issue is not what she has just said about your daughter's behavior. The deeper issue is she feels like she's a failure as a mother. And she needs you to listen. She needs you to help get what's on the inside out to the surface. So men, don't fix her. Resist the temptation to fix. But listen, nod your head. Make the appropriate noises at the appropriate times. Mm, ask the right questions, you know, mm, you know. And don't fake it or she'll know. And I'm thinking, how do you not fake it? Because I don't know how to do this, okay? And, um, and, and the whole time Wanda's weeping. And I'm realizing that I have a lot to learn about how to help someone grieve and express sorrow. By the way, he goes on and he says, and men, if you will listen to your wife this way for half an hour, and I'm like, half an hour, that's a long time to not fix. At the end of that time, she will say, thank you, honey, I feel so much better, but you won't have fixed anything. Why? Because she tapped into this. Blessed are those who get what's on the inside out to the surface, for they will be comforted. And... Folks, I think when it comes to ministry, we've got to help people process their loss and not fix them. We have a long history of trying to fix people in the body of Christ, and the reality is we fix nothing. We just bury the real issue deeper, okay? So I want to talk about five important questions. I'm going to hit each of these. I'll go through them quickly. Um, but the first question is this. What brings about the need for grief? And there's a one-word answer. It's the word loss, okay? When you experience loss in your life, it brings about a need to process, to bring it to the surface, and to uh, express sorrow. And again, we all do that differently. Some of you are verbal processors. You just need to get with someone and talk it out. My daughter, uh, Karis, she's now my 26-year-old, uh, I can tell when she's grieving because she does a collage. She grabs poster board, she cuts out pictures from magazines and words, and it's all over this poster board. And I'll walk into her bedroom, and there's a brand new poster board collage. And I'll look at it, and I'll go, tell me about that. And she tells me. And that's how she processes. She's very artistic. Uh, she sees in images and pictures. She's kind of a seer. And so there's a variety of ways to do this. Don't get stuck in a one-size-fits-all. But it is connected to loss. Uh, Henry Nouwen puts it this way. He said, there's, there, if there's any word that summarizes well our pain, it is the word loss. We have lost so much. Sometimes it seems as if life is just one long series of losses. 
When we were born, we lost the safety of the womb. When we went to school, we lost the security of our family life. When we got our first job, we lost the freedom of our youth. When we got married or ordained, we lost the joy of many options. Pause there for a minute. It's a young crowd. I need to help you with something. Okay. A few years ago, a young man, one of the leaders on our campus, he got engaged. It was senior year. And he got engaged to an amazing young lady. He had dated about five or six other girls. And uh, this one was the right one. And everybody on campus knew they were great together. So he walks in to the office area where my office was. And he looks in my office and he goes, could we talk? And I said, yeah. And he comes in and he looks depressed. And I'm like, dude, why are you depressed, man? You just landed an amazing young woman. She said, yes, we're all surprised about that. Uh, you know, but she said, yes, she's awesome. He goes, I don't know. I, I don't know what's going on. And all of a sudden I went, oh, I know. You are realizing that because you're saying yes to her, you're saying no to all the other girls on the face of the earth. And he goes, that's it. And I go, okay, you're not going to have this conversation with your fiance. Just hermano, hermano here, okay? We're going to talk because you have to grieve all the other relationships. Now, some of the girls are going, what a jerk. But ladies, listen to me for a minute. We walked through every girl that he dated and he celebrated what was good about it, but he also was honest about why it came to an end. And then he prayed and he blessed them and said goodbye to them. And he shut the door. You see, when you grieve well your past, you shut the door to it so you can fully embrace what God has for you next. Because what happens if a young man, or a young woman for that matter, does not fully close the door on those past relationships and then, you know, that boyfriend or girlfriend shows up on Instagram or Snapchat or Facebook 10 years from now and the door hasn't been closed. And so grieving shuts the door, even to good seasons, we'll talk about that more in just a minute, but we've got to close the door so that we can fully embrace what God has for us next. Uh, we lost the joy of many options. When we grew old, we lost our good looks, our old friends, or our fame. When we became weak or ill, we lost our physical independence. And when we die, we lose it all. And these losses are part of the ordinary life, but whose life is ordinary? The losses that settle themselves deeply in our hearts and minds are the loss of intimacy through separations, the loss of safety through violence, the loss of innocence through abuse. Now, by the way, on this one, I'll tell you, Wanda and I teach a class at the undergrad at NIAC, and our students have to do a grief journal. We're going to talk to you more about that. 100% of our students in the last few years have suffered the loss of innocence through either abuse or early sexualization meaning they may not have all been abused, but they have been exposed to sexuality issues way too soon, and it robbed them of their innocence. And, uh, and I, I think it's epidemic in our culture. And so there's a grieving in order to recapture the best of what God has for you, even in that area. Um, the loss of friends through betrayal, the loss of love through abandonment, the loss of home through war, the loss of well-being through hunger, heat, and cold, the loss of children, through illness or accidents, the loss of country through political upheaval, the loss of life through earthquakes, floods, plane crashes, bombings, and diseases. Perhaps many of these dark losses are far away from most of us. Maybe they belong to the world of newspapers and television screens. But nobody, now grab this one, nobody can escape the agonizing losses that are part of our everyday existence, the loss of our dreams. 
Okay? And so the bottom line is this. Nobody gets out of life without loss. Uh, there's nobody in this room that's going to say to me at the end, well, I don't, I don't have anything to grieve. I've, I've had a good life. Wait, listen, even if you've had a good life, you have experienced loss. Even if you had the perfect parents, you didn't have the perfect parents. They weren't perfect. Okay? Uh, we actually told our kids when they were little, we said, look, we're going to screw you up. We're not going to do it on purpose most days. But, you know, we know most parents, they start a college fund. We're actually going to start a therapy fund for you. Um, and, and if you need, you will need therapy, we'll, we'll help you with that, okay? Um, we were honest about it, okay? Uh, because nobody gets out of life without loss. And even if your life is amazing, you have to grieve the end of good seasons. So, for instance, when my first daughter, she's now almost 30, uh, she got a full scholarship to Eastern University down in Philly. And I was thrilled. I mean, we were excited for her, and so we took her down to Philly, we set up her dorm room, we prayed with her. It, it was, I mean, I did not want her to stay at home and work at McDonald's. That really wasn't God's plan for her life or mine. Um, and I was, I was excited, that's good. But when we shut the door to her room and stepped out of that dorm, I lost it. I started to cry. And Wanda's looking at me and she's like, uh, uh, what's up with you? I go, I've lost my daughter. She looks at me, she goes, she didn't lose her. She's back in the room. I know, but she's gone. She's never going to live at home again. Little did I know. She's back there now, okay? Okay, but, but I'm grieving that. And for two hours on the way back from Philly to New York, I'm just like, and I'd stop and then I'd lose it again. Well, then two years later, my son says to us, he's getting ready to go to college. He says, mom and dad, I want to go to college in Florida. And I'm thinking, oh, that's an 18-hour drive. There is no way I'm grieving 18 hours. So I said, Bryce, we're going to ship your stuff to Florida. We're going to take you to LaGuardia. We'll fly you there. I'll grieve the hour back from the airport. I'll be done. That'll be good. And he goes, no, I need that 18-hour drive to process the first 18 years of my life with you and mom. Yeah, right. Here's what happened. So <laughs> we load the car. We leave at the butt crack at dawn, like 3 a.m., you know, to drive to Florida. And... Uh, and Wanda and my son sleep the first 12 hours of the trip, okay? And I'm driving through North Carolina listening to country music because that's all you can listen to in North Carolina. But that's okay because it's music to grieve by. I lost my truck and my dog and my wife came home and, you know, and it's, you know. So, so this song comes on and it's a woman. It's a woman singing I need a man to stand beside me, not in front or behind me. She's longing for a good husband, okay? And so I'm hearing this song, and I start crying because I have three daughters. Yes, God, my girls need good men. Give them good husbands, Lord, you know? And so I'm, I'm feeling it. They're asleep. So I'm, I'm crying to this female country singer. Wanda wakes up in the middle of the song, and she looks at me sobbing, and she hears a woman singing, I need a man to stand beside me. <laughs> And she goes, you're crying to this song. I go, I am so hormonal. Just don't fix me right now, okay? <laughs> you heard the tape. Don't fix me, okay? Um, <laughs> so, but, but hear me. When a parent doesn't grieve their kid going off to college, there's a couple things that happen. First of all, you need to know that we call your parents like that helicopter parents. They keep showing up on campus. They hover. 
like a bad storm, okay? Helicopter parents. The other thing that happens is they are so connected to what they've lost that they do not fully embrace what God has for them next in their own life or the kids that remain. And so because I grieved and launched the older two, I fully embraced my younger two girls and their lacrosse career. And I mean, I just, I had the time of my life. And then when their season came to an end, I had to grieve that on my daughter's wedding day, one of the happiest days of my life. And on on that day, I cried more than any other day, I think, in my life too. What is the mixture of joy and tears? Well, I am grieving that I'm losing my daughter in the way I have had her so that I can fully embrace the man she now is united with, so that I don't continue to treat her like my daughter. I can now treat her as my daughter who is married to my son-in-law. And if I don't grieve it well, it affects that relationship, okay? So, moving on. Second question. Uh, Why is grieving necessary? Another way of phrasing this is, what happens if we don't grieve? Okay, so Ron, I hear you. You're saying it's important. Eh, What if I don't? I really don't have time to grieve. You know, Dan Guerin and Basham have us reading way too much. I just don't have time to process this emotional garbage, you know. Um, Being hard on you guys, okay? Uh, Grieve it later. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Listen, if you don't grieve, there's many things that can happen, but let me give you two. Number one, you will deaden your heart. When, when you experience loss and refuse to grieve, you begin to think, maybe if I don't hope for so much, I, it won't hurt so much. And so you give up on your dreams, you let them die, you let your heart die. Why? Because when you risk and when you dream and when you attempt big things and it doesn't work out, it hurts. And I have seen seminary students, and sorry, this jumped ahead a little bit. I've seen seminary students that um, have incredible dreams for their ministry, and I see them after about five years, and the light has gone out in their eyes because they've been through one too many governing board meetings. And they've been through one too many, we've tried that before, it never worked, Pastor. And, uh, And what happens is they begin to stop risking and they live a safe life. They deaden their heart. And, and if they don't deaden their heart, the other thing they do is they start to compartmentalize. And this is where a kind of a superficial Christianity comes in, where you present a Christian image with your public life, but in your private life, you numb the pain of disappointment with drugs, alcohol, pornography, whatever your drug of choice happens to be. Because when you don't grieve your losses well, you need a painkiller to deal with them. And so uh, that's what happens when we don't grieve. Instead of dealing with the arrows, Brent Curtis in his book, The Sacred Romance, puts it this way. Instead of dealing with the arrows, and the arrows are the losses, the wounds, and the lies connected to those wounds. You don't grieve them well. And so instead of dealing with them, we silence the longing. We deaden our heart. That seems to be our only hope, and so we lose heart. For how many losses can a heart take? Well, pause there for a minute. I think if you get this concept of grieving, now let me push in here. The good news and bad news is this. You're going to be grieving for the rest of your life. I wish I could tell you that after this talk, do one seven-page grief journal and you're done. But you're not. That'll just be chapter one. 
But if you make grieving a part of your regular spiritual formation repertoire, then here's the good news. There is nothing this life can throw at you that our God can't heal. And you can survive it. And not only can you survive it, but you can keep your heart alive and risk and go for it long into your, your older years, okay? And so how many losses can a heart take? If you deny the wounds or try to minimize them, we deny a part of our heart and we end up with living with a shallow optimism that frequently becomes a demand that the world be better than it really is. Now, pause there for a minute. So what he's talking about is those Christians that when they experience pain, they pretend that it doesn't hurt. And what he's talking about is a lot of Christians in American evangelicalism. And they go to church and it's like, hey, isn't God good all the time? God is good. Praise the Lord. How you doing, brother? I'm doing great today. I'm doing, yeah. But inside their hearts are broken. And yet we put on the facade. You know what it's like. But you know what's interesting? That kind of shallow Christianity is seen by the world a mile away. And I think it's one of the reasons why the world is not attracted to the kind of Jesus we're presenting to them. And so it's that false optimism. So that's one thing. Now, there's another group of people, and Curtis says, on the other hand, there are some people that embrace their arrows and their losses as the final word in life, and they're consumed by it. They don't grieve it and get through it. They stay there, and they live trapped in the depression of their loss, of their pain, of their misery, and that's another way that they lose heart. And so I, I'm not advocating for that. I'm saying uh, grieving is the process by which we leave that behind. And, and by the way, some people have asked, how long is the grieving season? Here's a little principle to remember. The depth of your loss determines the length of your grieving season. And, and so, and, and it's different for everybody. Uh, I'll give you one uh, thing. They say that when a young couple loses a child, okay, a child dies or uh, is lost at a young age, that it takes two years for them to fully grieve that loss. To be honest, I've talked to some young couples and they say you never fully. Uh, you have to continually revisit that grief to move beyond it. But again, the depth of your loss determines the length of your grieving season. Okay? Um, question number three. Why do we avoid the grieving process, all right? So if we need to do it because of loss, and if it is necessary, well, then why isn't everybody just signing up for a class on grieving? Here's why. It hurts. It's painful. And I'm sitting here, you're sitting here, and I'm telling you on a Thursday afternoon that it might be important for you to revisit some of the most painful moments of your life. And some of you are going, oh, hell no. I, I came to RTI to get away from that stuff. I am not going back there. I am not going to deal with it. And, and what I'm telling you is that in the midst of the pain of grieving, your freedom will be found. And in the midst of the pain of grieving, joy will be birthed. Because joy really does come in the morning, M-O-U-R-I-N-G. And so uh, when we see the pain, in fact, l listen to me. Even since I've started this talk, some of you have heard a little voice say, don't go there. It'll be too painful. You don't have time for this. In fact, if you go there, if you go to that place, you won't get out. And I, I want you to know something. That's not Jesus that's talking to you. That's not the friend of your soul. That's the enemy of your soul. 
And, and here's something I found over the last 25 years of leading people through this process. What you fear you will find in your grieving process is always worse than what you actually find. Now, take that one to the bank. Because when you stand at the precipice of going back and revisiting your relationship with your mom, with your dad, with your siblings, whatever that deep disappointment is, and you look into it, your fear of what it's going to be like is always worse than when you grab Jesus by the hand and he takes you there. And in the midst of going there, freedom begins to get birthed. And I, I use this little continuum, uh, this pain-joy continuum. It's, it's helped me over the years to kind of process this, this with people. If this is what you feel in terms of pain on this side, and this is what you feel in terms of joy, when you go through something painful, if you decide, nope, I'm not going to deal with that, and you move the wall in, and you say, I'm, I'm going to shut down my emotions over here. I'm going to move the wall in of what I'm going to feel in terms of pain. Here's the problem. You can't shut down your emotions selectively. And so when you start to numb your emotions, yeah, you're not feeling the pain. But guess what? The wall on this side moves in and you're not feeling the joy either. And so you begin to live, to use a musical term, this monotone existence where you're not hearing the low notes, but you don't hear the high notes either. And so uh, you begin to get robbed of your joy. And yes, you may not feel the pain, but you're just not feeling. And a life without pain is a life without fullness. And, and so you've got to begin to tear down that wall and say, Jesus, it's going to hurt. I know it's going to be painful. But when you do that, I promise you the joy gets unlocked as well. Um, I was in Omaha a few years ago. I think it was last year, maybe two years ago. And I was doing a, I think I was doing a seminar on worship. I wasn't even talking about inner healing. I wasn't talking about spiritual formation. We're talking about worship. And this young girl comes up to me and she goes, I need you to pray for me. I need an impartation of joy and passion. I used to have such joy in worship and I've lost my passion in worship. So would you lay hands on me and pray for a joy anointing? And I went, uh, tell me about your loss. Tell me about what you've lost in your life. And she looked at me and she goes, no, I don't want to talk about that. Just pray a joy anointing on me. And I'm like, oh, okay, I really wish it was that easy. But I'm going to tell you something. The key to your joy is found in your pain. What have you lost that you haven't grieved well? And she lost it. She started weeping. Um, make a long story short, uh, she was a relatively new Christian. She was dating a non-Christian guy. Her Christian friends in some ways rightfully pressured her to not be unequally yoked with this guy. She broke it off, but she never grieved it because she felt like, I'm doing the right thing. What right do I have to grieve doing the right thing, leaving a non-Christian boyfriend? And now she'd been two years in the church and every Christian guy she dated was a jerk compared to this guy. Okay, Christian guys, take note. Um, but part of it is they didn't stand a chance. They didn't stand a chance because when you don't grieve that previous relationship, you idolize that person, and, and they, they're not real. He becomes a fantasy boyfriend. And I said, you got to go back and grieve that. And she had two friends there with her, and they were standing there kind of shuffling. And I'm like, these guys fixed you, didn't they? And they went like this. And I said, now your job is to get over there in a the corner and shut up and don't fix her and don't pray for her. Stop your nonsense prayers and just cry with her for a couple hours. And when, when she starts to say stuff that's wrong, don't try to, you know, counsel her. Just weep with her. 
It hurts right now. She's not going to be theologically correct. Don't demand it. Let her get it out. And I, they went over to the corner of the church, and I, for three hours, they were over there. Just, I was just glad I wasn't there, okay? Uh, <laughs> but that night, you should have seen that girl worship. Because when you tear down that pain wall, he will tear down the wall that's been blocking your joy. And so a life without pain is a life without fullness. Okay, uh, question number four. With what options does our past pain leave us? All right, now, I'm not talking about um, kind of short-term options. Uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, some of you read her stuff, uh, famous author who did research on grieving. Um, unfortunately, her research was flawed in that she was only interviewing terminally ill patients, and so there's some fresh stuff that's coming out that's even better. But Kubler-Ross says that everybody goes through stages in their grieving. They go through anger, denial, rationalization, and, and that's a normal stage thing that we go through. And, and, and there's truth there. What I'm talking about is what are the options that people choose to camp out and live in, okay? And, and they're similar to the stages, but they're not stages. People just stay there forever. And the first one is hiding or denial, okay? They just pretend everything's okay, and they just move on, and they don't talk about it, and they push the loss, the disappointment, the hurt, the betrayal underneath the surface of the water the way they would a beach ball. But here's the problem. You ever shoved a beach ball under the water? It pops up somewhere, right? And what's interesting is it never pops up where you pushed it down. It pops up behind your back. It pops up over here. And so when you don't grieve stuff well, you start to experience physical problems that has nothing to do with the loss. Or you experience relationship problems or your relationship with God is impacted or your relationship with others that aren't even connected. And so hiding or denial doesn't work. Second, rationalization. This can take a lot of different forms, but uh, one of the things I see with guys like you, this generation, and, and you guys are fairly well put together. You're cool people. Uh, you've, most of you had some pretty good upbringing. And uh, when I come in and I do this talk, you go, ah, what right do I have to grieve? I mean, there's starving children in Africa. My mom used to tell me about them all the time when I wouldn't eat my food, okay? And I always had to send them my food, okay? Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Adventures and Missions used to bring me in. And they, they used to have me do this grieving lecture. Why? Because they didn't want to send world racers out to minister to the orphans and the homeless and the broken until they had dealt with their own loss. See, because here's, here's the deal, guys. No matter how small your loss is, it's still your loss. And if you don't deal with it, and then you go try to feed the hungry and care for the broken, you're doing it to fill your own black hole. And when you minister to people out of your own neediness, not brokenness, not a healthy sense of I'm broken and I need, no, a neediness that says I've never dealt with it, then what happens is they know you're getting something from them, not truly ministering to them. And so that kind of rationalization doesn't work. Um, anger and bitterness. Uh, we see this thing in New York, I know you don't have it here, called road rage. 
where when I forget my turn signal and I cut somebody off in traffic, they point their finger at me like, well, I'm not going to say, you know, one way Jesus, you know, only it's one over. You know, they, they have a level of anger that is out of proportion to the offense that I just committed against them. Why? Because I didn't make them angry by driving, driving erratically. I just revealed their anger. Do you understand? In other words, uh, when you are just living in anger and bitterness, and anger actually feels pretty good. Because when I am hurt, when I've experienced pain, when I've experienced loss, anger makes me feel like I'm no longer a victim. And the truth is, you, you still are, but you're victimizing others with your anger. And, and so uh, anger and bitterness, it doesn't solve anything. And in fact, it, uh, it affects all your relationships. Okay, Not a good choice. Addictions. Um, name your addiction. Uh, you know, alcohol, drugs, sex, pornography, um, religion can be an addiction. Uh, you know, just, just giving it all to Jesus. You know, I'm going to lay my life on the line. This whole religious thing, if you're not really dealing with your soul pain, if, you, if you're not dealing with your stuff, it just becomes another drug. And, and don't think, oh, Jesus is the good drug. Not that Jesus. That's not the, the Jesus that's the good one is the one that says, let me help you deal with this. Uh, not denial and not an addiction, but uh, something deeper. And so I, I really think the only option is this biblical grief and mourning process. So now one puts it this way. He says, yes, and hear him. We must mourn our losses. We cannot talk or act them away, but we can shed tears over them. We can allow ourselves to grieve deeply. And, and in this quote, don't miss this next line. This is the most important line. To grieve is to allow, allow our losses to tear apart our feelings of security and safety and lead us to the painful truth of our brokenness. Now, don't go over that too quickly because part of you should rise up and go, why do I want to tear apart my feelings of safety and security? Well, let me tell you. Your belief that you can keep yourself safe and keep yourself secure is an illusion. And grieving is your best friend to demolish the facade that says, I can be my own protector. I can be my own refuge. I can be my own strength. And when you dive into this grieving, you tear it apart, and in your brokenness, it drives you to Jesus, and you say, Jesus, you're my only hope. And that is where you want to end up. Because he is the only one that can be your safety and your security. And so in the midst of all this pain, there is a strange, yet very surprising voice of the one who says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's the unexpected news. There is a blessing hidden in our grief. Not those who comfort are blessed, but those who mourn. Somehow in the midst of our tears, a gift is hidden. Somehow in the midst of our mourning, the first steps of the dance take place. Somehow the cries that well up from our losses belong to our songs of gratitude. All right, the final question then is this. Let me give you a bullet list of what are the benefits. And, and some of these we've covered, so I won't, I won't take long. But uh, here's the benefits when you begin to embrace this. Again, as a regular spiritual discipline, not just a one-time, oh, I'm going to do this once and then I'll be done. Uh, in fact, uh, one time Juan and I were teaching uh, this, and I've had people come up to me, and they hear this teaching and they go, yeah, I have nothing to grieve. And they have no self-awareness. They are deluded. Uh, I believe we have an infinite capacity for self-deception 
And because we fear pain, this is one of the primary areas, areas where we deceive ourselves. And so I've had people say that. But this one year, we had a girl come up. Her name is Colleen. And she said, I think she went to Wanda first, and she said, Wanda, I really don't need to do a grief journal. And Wanda was like, yeah, yeah, we've heard that before. She goes, no, you don't understand. I believe in this. And since I was 12 years old, I have kept a journal. My mom taught me to grieve my losses every day. And at the end of every day, I write to the Lord, dear Lord, this is how I was hurt today. And she kept a journal every night grieving loss, grieving disappointment. And so she brought in a stack of journals, grief journals, that this girl, now in her 20s, had been keeping since she was 12. She was one of the healthiest girls that we had ever met. Beautiful, too. I tried to get her to date my son. No, seriously, I'm thinking, I want you to be the mother of my grandchildren. <laughs> you do not need therapy. And, <laughs> and they actually went out once, and it didn't work. But he, he, Sorry, he got a good girl. Um, <laughs> Don't listen to this tape, Bryce. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, you know, wh what are the benefits? Well, number one, listen, when you grieve, it helps you to live proactively instead of reactively. See, that person that does something to you, that hurts you, that disappoints you, that, that betrays you, if you don't grieve that well, then when you move on in ministry and you get into another situation in another town, in another place, and somebody does something that vaguely reminds you, then you react based on your pain from the past, not proactively. Or when you are in a ministry situation that reminds you of a previous ministry situation that didn't turn out well, now you live out a reaction. By the way, you may not need this right away, but this is big for parenting too. You've got to grieve each and every child so that you don't try to parent them all the same way. Otherwise, you end up reactively responding instead of being proactive. Second, um, it increases your emotional capacity. This refuses to stick with one. It, it increases your emotional capacity to handle life and people more fully. All right. Um, how many of you know what it's like? You get to the place where this is happening and this is happening and this crisis hit you and you get to the point where you go, if one more thing happens, I'm going to lose it, okay? I think most of us get there every week. Grieving is where you open the valve on the bottom of your tank and you release it to the Lord. And I think what grieving does is it lowers the level of your uh, emotional stress and trauma. And when you grieve, it helps you to increase the margin in your life for the next crisis uh, so that you don't get to the point where you can't handle anymore, okay? It increases your emotional capacity. Uh, third, uh, it gives you freedom and permission to risk again and set big goals, okay? So again, when you, when you grieve, you're disappointment. Because listen, you're going to try stuff that is not going to work. You're going to try ministry stuff. You're going to, and, and if you don't grieve it well, then you will start lowering the bar of what you're going to risk. And so when you grieve, it enables you to risk again and dream big dreams and go for it. And be okay with screwing up. Be okay with failing. Not everything you try is going to work. Okay. And you grieve it and you move on. But if you don't grieve... I think there's a lot of Christians that are living a safe life. They're just doing the bare minimum so that they avoid being hurt. And we got enough churches like that. 
please don't go into ministry if that's the way you're going to live. Okay? Um, fourth, it keeps your heart soft and gives you empathy for others' losses. Okay? This is a big one. Um, because I used to think that I can't really go and comfort somebody that's lost a son or a daughter because Juan and I have never lost. We have four kids. They're all healthy. How can I emphasize, empathize? To empathize with them means that I have a knowledge of what it's like to lose that and so I can relate to you at a deeper level than just sympathy. But if you're in touch with your own losses, it keeps your heart soft so when you encounter people in the midst of loss, you may not have lost the same thing as them, but we all have this in common. Nobody gets out of life without loss. And so it keeps your heart soft um, and, and it enables you to empathize with them. And then five, it restores your capacity to trust God and, and I'm going to put this out there, trust people too. Uh, I heard a, a saying a few years ago, trust God and love people. And I, I, in fact, I saw it on a shirt and I said to the guy, what does that mean? And he says, well, you can only put your trust in God. You can never trust people. And I said, you know, that shirt is not right because it's going to create a cynicism in you. And the reason you refuse to trust people is because you've been hurt by them. Now, listen, you can't trust everyone at the same level, but, but when you grieve, it allows you to step out and trust people again. Let me give you an example. Uh, when I was in Reading for the season, uh, I was the pastor over small groups at our church. And, and we were going to transition. I was going to become the lead pastor of Risen King Community Church in Reading. And Terry Wardle, the lead pastor, was going to become the associate. And Terry and I were dear friends and we're still dear friends. But that was a tough transition. When you do that kind of a shift in a staff, it was hard. And so one night, Wanda and I, we went to our small group and I unburdened my heart in my small group. And I said, guys, oh, I'm really struggling and I love Terry, but you know, I'm, I'm struggling with what he did here and I need, to, I need some place where I can be honest. And so blah, you know, I let it all out. Next morning, I got a call from Terry and he said, well, we should probably talk about what you said in growth group last night. Somebody in that group had called him and told him everything. Now we navigated it because we were good friends. But I went home and I said to Wanda, I am never going to another damn growth group as long as I live. And she goes, you're the pastor over growth groups. I go, I know, but there's not a better place to hide. And so you know what I did? I shut my heart down and I said, I'm not going to trust you stupid people anymore. And that's, I was angry. I'll trust God, but I won't trust people. And for six months, I used my position as the small groups pastor to just go and visit small groups and just analyze how are they doing and evaluate. And, uh, and at the end of six months, I was sicker than I'd ever been in my life. Because the only thing worse than getting burned is living in cynicism and denial and kind of walling off your heart from what you desperately need, and that is intimacy. And so grieving allows you to trust not only God, but people again. All right. So in conclusion, in order to grieve your past, you must get in touch with your heart and your pain. And uh, let me tell you a personal story of how this happens. Okay, now, I've got to reveal something about myself. I don't like pain. I don't like loss any more than the rest of you do. And so what I did as a young person is I developed a coping mechanism 
to not only protect myself from dealing with that garbage, but to keep other people from getting too close. And so my uh, coping mechanism, my defense mechanism of choice was humor. And I became kind of funny. Um, and, um, and so I memorized every Cheech and Chong album and I remembered every, you know, all these comedy albums and, and I, I, I kept people away. By the way, comedians do that. Often comedians uh, have the deepest pain of anyone you know. I mean, we just lost Robin Williams a couple years ago. Uh, he was an incredibly funny man, but had immense pain that he wasn't dealing with. And so for years, I would tell stories about my childhood as a comedy routine. And some of these stories were incredibly hurtful, but because I'd been telling them for years, getting people to laugh, they worked for me. And so um, I'm a pastor when this story that I'm going to tell you happened, and I had a guy that I had just led to the Lord. He was a brand new Christian. His name was Bruce. He'd only been a Christian about a month or two. And, uh, and so we were out to lunch one day, and I'm telling him a story that happened to me when I was seven years of age. Seven or eight. I might have been eight or nine. I, I, young, pre-10. And in this story, uh, I was a preacher's kid, and I was in church on a Sunday morning, and we were in Sunday school. And in Sunday school, back in the day, we sat around these tables, and we had these wooden slat chairs, and, uh, and I had a Sunday school teacher that was um, a tyrant. This guy was mean, and he was pretty intense, and so my goal every Sunday was twofold. Number one, don't get in trouble, and try to get somebody else in trouble first so that you didn't get in trouble, okay? So I'm in Sunday school, and that Sunday, we got I Love Jesus buttons. And I don't know why, but they gave us these I Love Jesus buttons, and so we're sitting around this table, and they give us these I Love Jesus buttons, I Heart Jesus, okay? And I reach underneath the table, and I tap my friend, and I put my I Love Jesus button on my crotch, where only he could see it, and I poked him, and he looked, and I went, woo, I love Jesus, okay? <laughs> and he lost it, and he starts laughing, and he got in trouble. He got put in the corner, and mission accomplished, okay? All right, now, so I'm telling my friend Bruce, this brand new Christian, this story, and he's laughing. He's like, you're an idiot. You know, I, I said, yeah, you should have known me at seven. Um, and, uh, and so he's laughing. Now, here's the problem. The bell rings to end Sunday school, and I forgot I had put the I love Jesus button on my crotch. So now I go up into the foyer of the church where hundreds of people are coming in. My, my dad, the pastor, is greeting people as they're coming in, and my mother, who I called Little Napoleon, okay, she was about four foot 11, and she was a field general. She is there. So she sees me coming in with an I love Jesus button on my crotch, which I'd forgotten was there. So I come walking in, and again, I'm telling Bruce's story. He's laughing his head off. And my mom sees me, and she goes into manifestation. Get over here. Get over here. She's like, get over here. And so I'm like, what? What's the big deal? Well, I get close enough. She just about castrates me, ripping this, you know. And I'm like, ah, you know, screaming. <laughs> she grabs me by the neck. What is wrong with you? Are you a pervert? Yes, you said I was a pervert. I'm, you know, I'm, sorry, that's another story. Uh, <laughs> So she just lays into me. Now, as I'm telling this story, Bruce stops laughing at that point. And he gets this really sad look on his face. And I go, why aren't you laughing? He goes, well, I'm not laughing because that's not funny. 
I go, what do you mean? I was seven and I had an I love Jesus button on my cross. He goes, no, that's funny. But what's not funny is what your mom did to you. And he goes, I don't know your mom, but is that the way she treated you all the time? And I said, well, what was she supposed to do? And, and this guy, brand new Christian, he goes, well, what would you do if your son did that? And my son, Bryce, was about the same age as I had been at the time. Really happy kid, joy, you know, big smile. And so all of a sudden, I had this vision of Bryce walking into the foyer of our church with an I Love Jesus button on his crotch. Now, when I tell this story, Bryce says, Dad, please tell them I never did this. It only happened in your sick mind. And I'm like, okay, okay. So Bryce never did this, but I have this vision of him coming in and I see me going, uh, Bryce, come on over here for a minute. And he's like, yeah, Dad, what's up? And he comes over and I put my arm around him and I go, uh, do you know you have an I Love Jesus button on your crotch? And he goes, oh, sorry, Dad. I was trying to get Mark to laugh. And, and I gently instruct him on what's appropriate and what's inappropriate. He goes, okay, Dad, I'm sorry. I'm like, no problem. I love you, buddy. I swat him on the butt and he runs off. <laughs> so I'm having this, this vision and then I look at Bruce and I go, and I start crying. And I can still feel it. I said, she really didn't care about my development. She cared about what she looked like. She cared about her reputation. She cared. And so discipline was never restorative. It was punitive. And so that be, that, in that moment, it was a window to my soul. And I started to grieve and I started to cry. And we're standing there in the foyer of the office area of the church. And Bruce goes, let's go into your office. <laughs> he goes, have a seat on the couch. I'm like, okay. So I sit down on the couch. He takes my chair. He's like, more Lord. Because he didn't know any other prayer. He was a brand new Christian. More Lord. And I lost it. And at one point he goes, ah, those are tears that are long overdue. And then they came. He didn't say anything. You know why? Because he didn't know anything to say, which was the best kind of Christian to have at that point. And he just said, let it out, let it out. And after about 10 minutes, I went, and I started to dry the tears and do this. And he went, no, 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 you're not done yet. There's more in there. And more came. Um, folks, some of you have tears that are long overdue. And God has brought you to this place at this time in your life. It's a safe place. It's a place where they're not going to fix you. But you've got to go for this. Now, here's the deal. We're not going to just give you this teaching and say, okay, go on your merry way. I want Wanda to come up. Yeah. Yeah. I want Wanda to come up. And we want to give you a little exercise to do. Um, and uh, so, uh, again, I'll let you walk them through this. One of the ways that might even be more helpful is for you to start off by asking Holy Spirit where to go. You don't necessarily have to go through chronologically, you know, through your life, especially if you come from an, an outrageously dysfunctional family. We all come from dysfunctional families and, and everything. So, but you can ask Holy Spirit, is there a place you want me to start? Is there one, even when Ron was talking, that came to the forefront of your mind? That's where you might want to go first. Yeah. But and as you do it as a regular exercise, if you wanted to, that's where you could go back chronologically. But for today and in a few moments, we're going to give you time to actually just have about 20 minutes and to go start this. And then we're going to kind of come back and debrief with you. So bullet list your losses. Um, 
And again, you can either start chronologically or wherever, wherever the most pain arises, okay? Um, and don't start, wow, what the heck? Yeah, it's very sensitive. Okay. It needs to grieve. Help me. <laughs> don't stop when it starts to get uncomfortable or painful, okay? Because again, our tendency, all of, who's going to just, yeah, let's dive right into the pain and it's the most awful thing, okay? We're all going to want to avoid, distract, get away from in every way. Don't do that. Let me add one thing. Don't be surprised if the Holy Spirit brings up a memory that you thought you'd already dealt with. Because it's like peeling an onion. When you peel an onion, the first few layers, the tears come because the mist is fresh. But if you let that onion sit, you can put it right next to your eyes and not feel a thing until the next layer. So, so in some ways, the Holy Spirit will take you back to something you thought you had dealt with, but there's more. And so let him take you deeper. Mm -hmm. okay. And again, sometimes when it is very uncomfortable or painful is, is just a sign that that's exactly where you need to go. And, and that's why we're calling it an infection under the scab. But fine, as you then come up with a list of things, oftentimes what I'll do with students when they come in, if they have something fresh in their mind, we'll just kind of direct them to go and write it out very in a raw manner. Don't edit it, don't use correct grammar. If you need to swear, swear. You wanna be raw in get letting it out because it's in being honest and of actually saying everything that's there, like everything you wish you could say, go ahead and say it. You're saying it to the Lord and if you read the Psalms and Lamentations, the lament before the Lord when, da when David would say, Lord, let's smash our enemies' babies' heads against the rocks. I mean, good grief. That's pretty strong language. But he always came back to the place at the end, but Lord, I trust in you. So he actually got it out. You need to get it all out. So don't sugarcoat it and it's like, oh, I'm not a good Christian because I'm feeling this amount or degree of anger or bitterness. All of that is what needs to come out. Because actually there's only so much capacity that we have, and because you have been pushing it down, pushing it down, pushing it down, there isn't any room. So when people bump up against you, what they get with your anger, with your frustration, with your sarcasm, with your bitterness, that's because that there is no room for anything else. We are making space for the Lord to come. We're getting all of that out, which then makes room for more of Him. And then you actually will have the joy, the peace, and what your heart really longs for. So when you find a safe person to process, so I'll have the person go away, write it write out, and sometimes they will write for pages on one thing, one memory the Lord brings up. They have a whole bullet list, but they only got through one. They come back and they process. And I'll say, do you want me to read it, or do you want to read it to me, or just talk to me? and then let them process that and all the things that go around with it. And you, if they come to you, you listen. Do not pull out your Romans 8.28, for all things work together for your love. <laughs> don't do that. That is fixing people. We don't fix people. We listen. You don't get to the place where they need that. You know, I'm, I'm not, we're not diminishing biblical truth, but uh, the difference between good medicine and bad medicine is often timing, okay? And so uh, that's, that's what we're talking about here. So we have till, we have about half an hour. Mm -hmm. So what we'd like you to do is, uh, I don't know if these chairs move, but I, I want you to jot some things down. And um, I wanna pray for you. And we're gonna give you about 
15 minutes. Um, and, and then we'll come back with about 10 minutes left and we'll do a little processing together, okay? So Father, right now, uh, I ask that this would be sacred space. Sacred space, Lord. And the thing about sacred space, it's safe space. And so we give permission now for each of these students, each of these people to be real. Uh, we, we declare you don't have to behave in this place. You get to be real in this place. Be real before your God. Be honest before your God. Be honest with safe people. So, Father, we, we thank you. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, as, as much as the enemy comes and says, don't go there, Lord, help us to listen to the voice of the Father, the voice of Jesus, the voice of the Holy Spirit saying, I will be with you.